Before I get into the actual story, I want to lay a foundation of biblical interpretation. It's funny that, that if you go into a Christian bookstore and you will see sections on uh, here's Bibles and then here's uh, Bible studies and then here's all of the other books that have been written, thousands upon thousands, and you will see titles everywhere. And you will see titles like Christ our righteousness and Christ this and Christ that. But it's interesting that as I thought about this, there's one title I have never, ever seen. And to validate that fact, I went to that encyclopedia of all encyclopedias, Google and to Amazon. And I typed in, yeah, somebody got that, good. And I typed in Christ, our teacher. And I could not find a single book with that title. Interesting. Because who is our teacher? Christ. In, in conversation with Nicodemus, and we all know that conversation very well, Christ actually lays out seven principles for biblical study. Now, we don't have time to go through all seven, but there are two that are critical for us to understand what is going on and why Korah's rebellion was preserved for us. Christ's principle number one. Whose principle? Christ's principle. He uses the physical, the things we can see in this world, to teach us spiritual things. Remember when Christ was sitting down with Nicodemus. He says, a man must be born again. And what did Nicodemus expect? Was he thinking of what? How can a man go back into a mother's womb? Was he thinking physically or spiritually? He was thinking physically, but Jesus intended spiritual. When Jesus pointed to the temple and said, destroy this temple and I rebuild it in three days. Again, he was looking at a physical temple, but what was the true? It was the spiritual temple himself. With the Samaritan woman, same principle. I will give you living water, physical water, but he meant spiritual water. Later on in the Gospel of John, he talks about that famous story about the blind man. And, he, and the Pharisees, after the blind man gives the testimony, after he's healed, he gives the testimony before the Sanhedrin. And later on, afterwards, uh, Jesus was seeing him and some of the Pharisees who were following them, and they turned around and said, what, are we too blind? Could they physically see? Absolutely. But they had testimony from a supposed uneducated man who understood exactly who Jesus was, and yet there stood the educated. And so they were assuming, here we have again physical blindness and spiritual blindness. And of course, that's a New Testament teaching, right? doesn't belong anywhere else. It's only in the New Testament that's revealed, right? Ah, I heard somebody say no. You happen to remember uh, that silly little story that uh, gets repeated every once in a while. Uh, uh, this story about uh, Adam and Eve being tempted by Satan, the serpent in the garden. Because what does Satan do? He says, the moment you eat from this tree, your what will be open. Your eyes will be open. And yet she was able to see the tree and saw that it was good. So was Satan even tempting her with physical blindness, or was he promising spiritual eyesight? Interesting, too, that when Adam afterwards, had put on and made fig leaves to cover them that when God walked into the camp, he felt naked and had to hide. Is it perhaps it wasn't a physical nakedness? Or perhaps a spiritual nakedness had been exposed? Hmm. Principle number one, God uses the things of this world to teach us heavenly things. Christ's principle number two, acted parables is what I will call them. You may have heard of 
uh, people talk about typology, that's usually the scholarly term, that there is a something that is preserved, a story or something, the sanctuary being one of the great typologies of all, that it's a pattern, but it reveals something greater. Jesus used this with Nicodemus. As he's talking with Nicodemus, he says, the same way as Moses lifted up the serpent, so too must the Son of Man be. So Jesus was pointing back and saying that this story that happened in the Old Testament where Moses was told to, to create a serpent by God and lift it up, it was talking about me. And it's interesting what a little sidelights is, is that those of us who like to dig a little deeper in scriptures, it actually wasn't a serpent that God told Moses to make. It was the Hebrew word seraph, which is translated elsewhere in Scripture as a fiery seraphim. Interesting. Is that at least a couple homes? <laughs> Paul dove into this principle of typology in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And when he was recounting the story of the Exodus journey, he goes with chapter in verse 6, and I don't need you to turn because we don't want to save some time. I'm going to read it to you. He says, Now these things became our examples. And the Greek word there is typos, where we get type from, like in typewriter. And the entire purpose of, of that use of that word that Peter used and that Paul used when he talks about types and examples used throughout the New Testament, it means to strike, as in a die, the same way a typewriter key will strike. And why were they using that word? Remember, this is the common language of the people. It's because Paul and the apostles wanted us to understand that there was messages that the same way a type leaves an impression, the stories need to leave an impression upon you and upon me. And so today we have the story of Korah's rebellion, which is a type, a warning for us. Follow with you, if you will, in Numbers and turn with me there to Numbers 16, if you're not already there. And I'm going to read again verses 1 and 2. Now Korah, the son of Ezar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram and the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses and some of the children of Israel, 250 peasants, leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. This was not a ragtag rebellion. To help set up the situation with what is going on with Korah and his co-conspirators, we need to take a step back and look at the book of Numbers as a whole. The book of Numbers derives itself from the taking of two censuses. The first census happens at Mount Sinai. The second census happens actually at the end of the book, just before the people were to enter into the Promised Land. And in between those two censuses, there are some remarkable stories. Someone referred to them as object lessons. Today's lesson, Korah, being one of them. During that, Korah and Israel, excuse me, introduces a new form of math. Everybody thought new math was invented this century. 
They took 11 and turned it into 40. And you say, how on earth did they do that? Well, if you take a look at the approximate location that they have been at, they were only 11 days away from the promised land. But because of their lack of faith, when the, when the spies were sent out, an 11 days journey became 40. The outline of Numbers goes very much kind of like this. Chapters 1 through 8, there's an organization of God's people around Mount Sinai and around the tabernacle. Interesting. Was there a similar pattern revealed in the New Testament with the gathering of 12 apostles around the living temple? Hmm. Then there was a Passover. No relation there. And then in chapter 10, there were two silver trumpets, and the purpose of the trumpets was the sound for the congregation, silver being used as a metaphor for God's word. It was a time for when God would say it's time to move forward and it's time to stand still. And do we not see that in the book of Acts, that the leaders of the church would not move unless God directed them to? Then there was the sending out of the 12 spies. Fear and doubt had entered into God's people, and that resulted in a 40 days of wandering. Chapter 15 then brings up the bread and drink offering. Oh, no pattern there, again, right? Uh, no, no, thank you. And then that brings us to Korah's rebellion. It has been said history repeats itself, and those who do not learn from the past are destined to what? Repeat the same mistakes. So who is Korah and his co-conspirators? Why were they united? Hmm. Is the church supposed to be united? Yeah, be very careful what you're uniting with. They were united against in rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And so my question is, is why is this story so important? Well, keep in mind that it's in the Bible, first of all. So that should give us one. It was important enough for Moses to remind in that small sermon called Deuteronomy his last sermon, that he repeats the warning. It's mentioned in Psalms again, in Psalms 106, how they envied Moses and Aaron. And even that huge, huge, huge epistle by Jude, you know, the one that's like one chapter, 25 verses, even Jude felt compelled to talk about this rebellion. What on earth? Listen to what Jude says. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. I thought the New Testament church was perfect. What on earth would why we're going to talk all about love, right? Why would you, the brother of Jesus, suddenly be turning around when the power of the Spirit was upon the church, sitting back and warning them and saying, I was going to write to you about the love of Jesus, about the common salvation, but I found it necessary to warn you because certain men have crept in to the church unnoticed. But we don't need to study prophecy. All we need to do is talk about the love of Jesus, right? Except what does love do? Love rebukes. Love edifies. Love extols. 
So who were Korah and the rebels? Well, we see that Korah is actually from the tribe of Levi. Levi was the third son. It also makes him, oh, excuse me, third son, obviously, of Isaac. It also makes him a cousin of who? Moses. Now, interestingly enough, his co-conspirators does not come from the tribe of Levi. He's able to find co-conspirators in the tribe of Reuben, in the names of Abiram, Dathan, and On. Keep in mind that Reuben was the firstborn. And there's some things going on that are very easy to miss. See, Aaron had been appointed, what? To be high priest. See, at Mount Sinai, there is a change in the priesthood. Prior to that, it was the head of the household, usually the firstborn, who was the priest, who acted as the intercessor, who acted as the one who could draw near to God, which is actually what a priest means. And so now, perhaps Korah is feeling a bit slighted. And somehow he is able to go to Reuben and that tribe and find some people to rouse up and say, hey, wait a minute, you're from the firstborn tribe. I'm going to speculate a little bit, but I can picture conversations going on like, you're the firstborn. That right belongs to you. Unreasonable? And of course, Moses is set up as the civil leader. Now, keep your fingers here in, in numbers, if you will, if you're following along, because we're going to stay for the rest of the day. We're going to stay in numbers. But in order to understand the pattern that God is wanting us to preserve, we have to understand one additional thing. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. And that's Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. Keep your fingers there in numbers because we're going to come directly back to it. Because this is critical to understanding the greater message of this story. Are you there? And so it says to this, so the Lord says to Moses, see, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. Earlier, he says, Aaron will be your spokesman. What has God done with sitting back and saying to Moses, I am going to make you as God before Pharaoh? Who, and then Aaron becomes the spokesman. Who becomes the spokesman here on earth for God? Christ. Do you see the parallel that's beginning to happen? Now, let's go back to numbers to see if the light, we can turn some a little bit more spiritual light on to this. I'm going to again... Repeat, now Korah, the son of Ezar, and the son of Kohath, and the sons of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, and the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. Now it's interesting to note later on, On is never again mentioned. Apparently, On had a change of heart and realized what he was doing and withdrew. We can only speculate, but that seems to be the implication. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. We've talked about that. And then listen to this next. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and they said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy. 
every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Who does that sound like? I heard it. I shall be like the Most High. I will sit above the congregation of the Lord. As we go through here, I hope you start to see some parallels. That this story not only is a real story that happened here on Rebellion on Earth, but it gives us shadows and patterns and principles that were repeated in the rebellion where it began in heaven. Why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Let me, says Satan. Going with verse 4, and so this is how it picks up. So when Moses heard, he ran around sitting back and saying what? No, he didn't run around whining and belly aching, though he probably had every right to do. And if I'd have been in his shoes, that's exactly what I had been, would have done. That's why I wasn't in his shoes. No, he fell on his face. See, he humbles himself, and he's falling on his face, not towards his conspirators, but he's turning towards God and basically saying to God, you put me here. You put me in charge. This is your problem, not mine. And so this is how God leads a true man of God. And he spoke, and so Moses gets up, obviously, and he spoke to Korah and his company, saying, now listen what he does. He doesn't get into debate and argument. Remember my last sermon with Nehemiah. You don't debate and negotiate with your enemy when you have the truth. And tomorrow morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy. So who is Moses saying is going to determine this argument? God is going to determine it. And who is Aaron, excuse me, Korah and all of those really rebelling against? Are they rebelling against Moses and Aaron? They're rebelling against God and his authority. And it continues, and he says, The Lord will show he who is holy and will cause him to come near to him. The one whom he chooses, God chooses, will be the one that he causes to bring him near. He says, now do this. Take censers, Korah, and all your company. Put fire into them. And what does fire typically represent? The Holy Spirit, the presence of God. Remember, the presence of God when, when Moses was standing in the burning bush. The angel of the Lord was there. There was fire. When Isaiah was brought before the throne, when Ezekiel was brought before the throne, the throne of God is always represented as being a flame of fire. And yet Satan has put it on our hearts to fear it. There's only one reason to fear the fire. If you don't have Jesus. And then you should fear it. But if you have Jesus... Stand tall like the three young Hebrew men. Do this. Take censers, core, and all your company. Put fire in them and put incense in them. Prayers of the saints in them and tomorrow the Lord. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the Holy One. And now Moses lays it out, right? We can't say this in church. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. Wow, that is not politically correct, is it? We cannot say that to, to, to God's people. Then Moses says to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it now, Moses is trying to, and this I kind of believe is finally what perhaps may have gotten on and why he may have withdrew himself. Is it such a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself? Because remember, what were the Levites given? They were given the duties of the sanctuary. 
No, it wasn't the high priest. But they were allowed to draw near. That is something that was not given to the other tribes of Israel. They were picked out as a special people. But apparently for Korah, and apparently for, the, for, for his co-conspirators, obviously it was not enough. Is it such a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to rule over them? Oh, you mean as leaders in the church who are supposed to be servants? Where have I heard that before? And then he was brought you near to himself, you and all the brethren, the sons of Levi, and with you. And are you seeking the priesthood also? Who was the priest now? Aaron. And was Aaron just any priest? He was anointed as high priest. We would never receive a rebellion against I repeat again, would we? I see and heard a couple snickers. I see some people have already made the connection. The Lord is leading you. Good for you. Therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is it that you would complain against Aaron? I can't imagine what. Satan, Lucifer, would have been doing complaining against Jesus in heaven. Do you? After all, he was what? An exalted cherub who stood by the throne. Continuing in verse 12, Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come up. What is Moses doing here? We saw first that when, when the confrontation of the conspirators and rebels first came, what did Moses do? He humbled himself before God, basically turned to him and said, this is your problem. You've put me here. You've helped solve the problem. Too often, we try to solve our own problems. And now, he's looking past Korah because he probably sees something in Korah that he is the leader, and he's trying to do what? with Dathan and Abiram. He's trying to reason with them. Did not God say, come reason? May your sins... And listen to what Moses again tries to repeat. And he says, is it such a small thing that he has brought you up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? This is, excuse me, what Dathan and Abiram are throwing back at Moses. They've never said that before, right? And that you should keep acting like a prince over us. So what was their real issue? The real issue was you're a prince. We want to be that prince. Who are you to exalt us? Moreover, you have not brought us to the land of flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of the fields and the vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? Ah, there's that spiritual eyesight again. We will not come up to you. So Moses now demonstrates another aspect of God's character. One of mercy, one of intercession, one of appealing, trying to reason with us. And notice Moses' response. Then Moses, picking up with verse 15, Then Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, 
Do not respect their offering. Ouch, I thought God heard all of our prayers. Never was written in scriptures. God never told a prophet to say, don't pray for the people. My mind is made up. That never happened in scriptures, right? Now Moses shows a little bit of humanity, I think, in him, because next he says, I have not taken one of their donkeys from them, nor have I heard any of them. So what is Moses doing? He's doing a human thing of trying to try to justify self. But he is repeating facts, and he's not doing it in a boastful way. He's doing it in a way, I believe, so that all the other conspirators can hear what he's saying and perhaps have an opportunity to pull away and rethink what they're doing. And Moses repeats what the test will be and says, Tomorrow, you and all your company, be present before me. No, before the Lord, you and all, as well as Aaron. And then each take a censer and put incense in, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord. 250 censers, both you and Aaron, each with your censer. Now, we will find out a little bit later that this is not that this particular type of sensor is a little bit different. See, there were two types of sensors used in the sanctuary service. One was made out of gold, and that was preserved for the high priest. The others were made out of bronze. And we will see the meaning of that in a short period of time. So every man took his censer, put fire into it, picking up with verse 18, laid incense on it, stood at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting with Moses and Aaron. And Korah ran away, right? He had second thoughts. No, Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the, not just any place, but at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting. Brings them right into the presence of God. And then watch what happens next. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all of the congregation. And Moses spoke, excuse me, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, oh, that's okay. I'll forgive them. They don't know what they're doing yet. The Lord says to Moses and Aaron saying, separate yourselves from among the congregation that I may consume them in a moment. For the Lord is what? with sin, but a consuming fire. And then they fell on their faces and said, this being Moses and Aaron, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with the whole congregation. What aspect of God's character is Moses now demonstrating? Mercy, his greatest because did not James himself say, mercy triumphs over justice. Moses is appealing to God for mercy. Let not one man sin. The prophet Ezekiel brings this out very clearly when he says, the son shall not be punished for the sin of the father, nor the father punished for the sin of the children. Why is that so critical, so important? because it reflects properly on the character of God. And it's sad because we have churches within the Christian community that say we are being punished for Adam's sin. We may have inherited the consequences, but you and I 
if we do not accept Christ, we will stand alone and have to account for our own sin before God. Fortunately, we have the blood of Christ protecting us. And this is what we see in Moses as acting as an intercessor. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the congregation saying, get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Notice God doesn't change his mind in terms of what he's going to do with the rebellion. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed. And he spoke to the congregation saying, depart now from the tents of the wicked men. Oh, we can't call people in the congregation of God wicked, can we? No. Touch nothing of theirs. Hmm. Least you be consumed in all their sins. So they got away around from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram came out, and they humbled themselves, right? They stood there, filled with pride, filled with defiance against Moses and Aaron and against God. And they stood at their doors, and they weren't satisfied just taking themselves, were they? Because what does the scripture say next? Their wives, their sons, and even their little children. Do our actions have consequences? Undesirable. There is a little bit of hope, however, in this story. Because apparently Korah's sons didn't participate with the rebellion. You go through the Psalms, you will find uh, later on that the sons of Korah actually contributed 11 of the Psalms. And many of the descendants of Korah actually become distinguished and honorable men of the sanctuary service. Aminadab happened to be one of them. Again, God is merciful and he is just. I will not punish the sons for the sins of the fathers. Come on, that's worth another amen. Thank you. Picking up with verse 28, are you staying with me? And Moses said, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them on my own will, reminding him it wasn't me. And notice what he does now. He says, again, he is going to demonstrate who is truly in control because he doesn't put a man-made item out there. Test. He says this, if these men die naturally, like all men, or if they are visited by a common fate of all men, perhaps by accident, then the Lord hasn't sent me. Then they're right, and I'm wrong. And you should join in their conspiracy. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens up its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them. And they go down alive. You know, sometimes I, I wonder why God allows silly, obvious little things like that to be there. Like, I will kill you with death. And I wonder the message that he's trying to get us to understand. Do you think perhaps he's trying to get us to not miss something? They go down alive into the pit that you will understand that these men have rejected Moses. They have rejected the Lord. What happened 
So Satan and the fallen angels, Satan was able to deceive in heaven. Where were they cast first? Into the abusos, into the abyss. Do you not remember in Luke when Jesus, when Jesus went and he went to the, to the, the demonic possessed man and he says, what is your name? And they, and they turned around and responded, our name is Legion because we are many. Remember that story? And to remember what they said, do not send us back to the deep. You can't send somebody back if they haven't already been there. And that word a deep is the same word that's used in Revelation, the same words that are used to describe the condition of the earth in the Greek version of the Old Testament, abusos. So what did God do? Did God sit back and say to, to earth and say, okay, we don't want Satan in, in heaven, so we're going to cast him down, and we can't deal with him. We're going to let you deal with him. Is that what God did? No, that's not what God did. If you follow the, 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 the sequence properly, they were cast out. God creates the earth. Lucifer sees a way. Satan sees a way to get back. He knows, God, that you have to be 100% obedient. He only has to tr trick Adam and Eve into one sin, and then who becomes ruler of this world? We are slaves to whom we obey. How many sins did it take for Adam and Eve? How many acts of disobedience to God's word did it take? Only one. Do you see why I love this story of Korah's rebellion? Are you getting to see a picture? Do you see how this rebellion, that in principle it reveals details of what happened in the heavenly rebellion? And how God tried to reconcile it. I do not believe for a second that Lucifer just went up and says, Hey, I'm rebelling against you. And then God decided I'm going to kick him out now. What we see going with Moses and what Aaron are doing reflects the true character of God. How did Lucifer, how did he become Satan? How did he wind up bringing and being able to deceive not just a few, but one-third of the angels. It's by his tail, which Isaiah says is a lying prophet. Let me malign the character of God. We're just as holy as he is. How do we know he created us? We're standing here. He's standing there. I didn't see him create anything. Oh, Lord, let us finish. Now it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the grouth split apart under them. The earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them with their household and all the men with Korah with all of their goods, meaning God wanted nothing left of them. So they and all the men went down alive again into the pit. The earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. And in all of Israel who were around them did what? They fled and cried out, lest the earth swallow us up also. And then the fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 princes. I am a consuming fire. Keeping in mind, have you ever wondered in your, in your, in your mind that God knew Lucifer was going to, he's all-knowing. He knew Lucifer was going to rebel. 
So why did he even create him in the first place? Well, if you come to understand the true character of God, his is an unconditional love. Unconditional love must give you the same right to say no as to say yes. In the same way, I cannot force my wife for her to love me and stay with me or vice versa. God cannot force. And so, because of his character, he still had to create Lucifer. And then the second question is, well, after he did the rebellion, why didn't you just squash him like a bug, right? Have you ever asked that question? Am I the only one that that asked that silly question and say, Lord, why? I don't get it. Well, when you drop down to the end, you'll find out why as we continue. Now, I mentioned before about the censors. This is what Moses' instruction gives for those censors of theirs. He says, tell Eleazar which is actually the Hebrew form of the word uh, name Lazarus. There's a little story about Lazarus in the New Testament. Uh, Tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, to pick up the censers out of the blaze, for they are holy. Why were they holy? Because Korah made them holy? Or because God made them holy? Scatter the fire some distance away, meaning I don't want their fire. I have my own my own character. The senses of the men who sin against their own souls, there again that principle, let them made into a hammer of plates as a covering for the altar. To be a remembrance of what happened. Drop down to verse 41, what happens next? After the camp sees all of this, the next day, The congregation comes back and says, thank you, Moses. We appreciate restoring our faith and interceding for us. (sighs) Leaders of the church can understand this one, can't you? On the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured again against Moses and Aaron, and they accused them of doing what? It wasn't God that killed them. You killed them. Oh, we would never see that in a congregation of the Lord. To summarize and bring us to a point, we see throughout the life of Moses the character of God being revealed and how he dealt with the rebellion. It gives us a reflection of how God dealt with the rebellion in heaven. We see in verse 3 that the camp that they came and says, we're as holy as you are. We know who that sounds like. I will be like the Most High. In other words, I can be just as holy as you are. What makes God God? Well, if we're to break it down into the most simplest things, we understand his character. He is creator and he is holy. And we would never have a rebellion against God in that, right? We would never, ever see a rebellion against the one day that is told to be a remembrance. Even we, as Seventh-day Adventists, have a tendency to forget what is the first instruction in keeping the Sabbath? To keep it holy. It is not about a day of rest. It is about keeping it holy. We have been purchased at a price. He wants us to be drawn near to Him. Verse 10 talks about the rebellion against the priesthood also. Keeping in mind, stories can not only point us to things to the past, but they can point us to things of the future. 
We would never have a rebellion against the priesthood today, would we? Who is our high priest today? Surely someone would not rebel against the high priesthood of Jesus, right? And then the earth opens up and swallows them. Should I do it? Nah. The message is clear. Let me bring this in summation. Korah's rebellion was about a rebellion about exaltation of self, an exaltation of pride, an exaltation of not being satisfied with what God has given you in your life. Paul stated clearly, I learned to be content, whether rich or whether poor, whether in jail or whether in free. There is a heavenly application because it reveals what happened in a rebellion in heaven. Korah's rebellion also, unfortunately, is a stark prediction of a future prophecy about a rebellion, not against Aaron as high priest, but a rebellion by men against the high priesthood of Christ, who is in the heavenly sanctuary. Hebrews reminds us, seeing that we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, and nor do I accept men who have that same weakness. But all points tempted as yet we are, and yet was without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in our time of need. We know who Korah is today. There are men out there trying to teach otherwise. But God's true people knows who Korah is, that he is alive today. But I would sit back and challenge you this. There is another Korah that I fear, even greater than the one who has the audacity to put himself in the place of Christ, our high, true high priest. And that is me. The Korah within me, the Korah within you, that is the true Korah that we must all fear.